When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I keep coming back to something I read in the first episode on Walt Whitman's life, where he says this in his notebooks. Make no quotations and no reference to any other writers. Lumber the writing with nothing. Let it go as lightly as a bird flies in the air, or a fish swims in the sea. Rules for composition a perfectly transparent, plate-glassy style, artless, with no ornaments, or attempts at ornaments for their own sake. They only looking well when, like the beauties of the person or character by nature and intuition, and never lugged in to show off, and so on. This is a incredible passage to me, in part because it is very hard for any writer or any creative person to actually follow their own rules for composition. And I just sort of wonder how exactly Whitman did it. I sort of have a sense of how it might happen because some time ago I had almost from the very first spark the idea of a book containing three long poems one about the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, the other about the life of Leonardo da Vinci, and the third about the life of the Greek philosopher Pythagoras. And from the start, as far as I can remember, I knew exactly what shape each of those poems would take. I knew that the poem about Leonardo da Vinci would have long Whitmanesque lines and that it would and that those lines would give the poem a sort of breath to ramble on and contain a lot of lists and details and would allow uh, my voice of da Vinci to, to ramble on himself. I knew that the poem about Lee Harvey Oswald would be my sort of ode or would sum up what I had learned from Wordsworth's prelude using the iambic line to do biography, in Wordsworth's case, a spiritual biography, and in Oswald's case, something else entirely. And probably most interesting, I knew nothing at all, or very little, about Pythagoras, except a story about how he supposedly discovered the harmonic scale 
which was which is a uh, quite a long story, but it involves him walking past the shop of a smith who is banging his hammers on the anvil, and from the sound of the different hammers, uh, Pythagoras supposedly came to a realization about regularity and music that no one had ever come to before. It's a tall tale, and and from what I am aware of now almost could not have happened the way that it's told. But it struck me so fiercely that I wanted to do an entire poem about him. And I wanted to do the entire poem about him in the style of Piers Plowman and the uh, who did a long, uh, the author of whom did a long uh, alliterative line that makes the English of that line sound fairly bizarre to our ears, but also gives it a great movement. And also, if we go back to the alliterative line of the Anglo-Saxon poets, it can also give it great pathos and sadness and emotion as well. Now, when I imagined this poem about Pythagoras, as I said, I knew hardly anything about him, and I knew probably even less about Anglo-Saxon poetry and certainly about uh, Piers Plowman, who I had only read bits and pieces of. But somehow, that is exactly what I needed and exactly how those poems turned out. I have no idea how that happens. The mystery of creativity is a mystery. Uh, it's completely bizarre to me that, that I can have an idea, in this case, three poems in my head, and I can sort of feel the weight of them in my head, or even sometimes it's a physical feeling, the, the weight of them in my chest. I know how long the poems will be. I sort of know what the tone and the tenor of the poem will be, how serious or when it will get silly. Um, it's very strange. So I have an idea of of how Whitman can begin his poetic career by saying these things. But at the same time, the three poems that I mention are far from Whitman, and they are far from being as revolutionary as Whitman's poems were in his own day. So in that sense, too, it is still a mystery. The, the reality of creativity is still standing far off, as Whitman might say, bowing and sort of chuckling at my attempt to understand it. Um, I just wanted to bring that up because it's something that has been striking me over and over again since the day when I recorded the first episode about Whitman. When we last left him, uh, Paul Zweig had mentioned how central the Civil War was to Whitman's poetry, and obviously to his life. And now, uh, in the early pages of his book, he swings back to talk about Whitman's early life. And this is a fairly long section, but I think it's worth reading about uh, about Whitman's uh, early feelings and attachment uh, to politics, especially as he was a uh, uh, a newspaper reporter and a journalist for 
I would guess the entirety of the 1840s. And this definitely looks forward to his poetry. This is what he has to say. America, Whitman declared, was principally an experiment of how much liberty society will bear and a test of man's capacity for self-government. And here uh, Zweig is quoting uh, the, um, the editorials that Whitman was writing at the time. So America as a, quote, test or a, as a, quote, experiment. These words convey a tentativeness, a note of anxiety, for America's historical adventure could fail. Quote, O oh, dark were the hour and dreary beyond description, the horror of such failure. Later, Whitman would call Leaves of Grass too an experiment, and wonder at times whether it too had failed. Whitman's grandiose vision had a dark side, a feeling for the precariousness of America's and his own venture, and of progress itself, which, as it propelled man toward his future, left much behind. In Whitman's view, liberty and government were intrinsic enemies. Quote, men must be a law unto themselves, he wrote, and the best government is that which governs least. This is pure Jeffersonian theory, a kind of enlightenment anarchism. During Whitman's years at the Eagle, it had been his most consistent and passionately held belief. The true law of democracy, he continued, would never be written, quote, by mere politicians, sweating and fuming with their complicated statutes, but must spread from its own beauty and melt into the hearts of men. Arguing in particular against the morality and temperance laws that had become popular during the 1840s, Whitman had declared, we would hunt immorality in its recesses in the individual heart and grapple with it there, but not by law. We would direct our blows at the substance, not the shadow. These ideas governed Whitman's opinions on specific issues of the day. All his life, he was an advocate of free trade, an enemy of the morality laws, and of the Whig program for, quote, internal improvements. He was against a national bank. Despite his sympathy for the working man, he was also against trade unions. During the spring of 1846, he had written a series of angry editorials about a strike at a large South Brooklyn construction site. Workers were entitled to higher wages if they could get them, but unionism was a misguided weapon. It created counter-governments and ever more complicated statutes. In Whitman's America, the working man, too, had to be a law unto himself and not a joiner of unions. Largely speaking, these ideas formed the basis of Democratic Party philosophy. Yet more was at stake here than political allegiance. Whitman was moved by a vision of liberating upheaval, a chaotic play of interests and ideas capable of shattering the constraints of mere good government and sweeping all of society into its liberating orbit. 
to those who were troubled by the violence of American public life, Whitman answered this. Why, all that is good and grand in any political organization in the world is the result of this turbulence and destructiveness. And controlled by the intelligence and common sense of such people as the Americans, it has never brought harm and never can. A quiet, contented race sooner or later becomes a race of slaves. But with the noble democratic spirit, even accompanied by its freaks and excesses, no people can ever become enslaved. And to us, all the noisy, tempestuous scenes of politics witnessed in this country, all the excitement and strife even, are good to behold. They evince that the people act. They are the discipline of the young giant getting his mature strength. God works out his greatest result by such means. And while each popinjay priest of the mummery of the past is babbling his alarm, the youthful genius of the people passes swiftly over era after era of change and improvement. It is the fashion of, of a certain set to despise, quote, politics and the corruption of the parties and the unmanageableness of the masses. They look at the fierce struggle and at the battle of principles and candidates, and their weak nerves retreat dismayed from the neighborhood of such scenes of convulsion. But to our view, the spectacle is always a grand one. Is it too much to feel that this joy that is among us, the whole surface of the body politic, is expanded to the sun and air, and each man feels his rights and acts them? We know well enough that the workings of democracy are not always justifiable in every trivial point. But the great winds that purify the air, and without which nature would flag into ruin, are they to be condemned because a tree is prostrated here and there in their course? And I wonder what will be made of this point of view after the Civil War. Uh, Zweig goes on to say, in this vigorous editorial, we hear accents that would become familiar in Whitman's prose. Turbulence, he asserted, is the lifeblood of democracy. It is the counterforce to mere government, a solvent in which laws and history itself dissolve. During the previous decade, American political life had become a free-for-all of torchlight rallies, street gangs, and fulsome demagogic speech-making. Both parties were divided, quarreling among themselves. Abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips worked to inflame sectional conflict in a language of apocalypse which eventually was heard. Indeed, Whitman's theory of democratic turbulence resembles that of Phillips, who said, quote, a republic is nothing but a constant overflow of lava, end quote, who saw himself as a mover of the democratic earthquake. The convergence is curious, for Whitman's political positions were, for the most part, moderate. He abhorred the abolitionist's disregard for national unity, yet his emotions often swamped his opinions. 
On the whole, the eagle's rhetoric tended to be more inflamed than its politics. We touch here on one of those contradictions Whitman later insisted on in his poetry. This truculent innovator, enlarging the limits of experience, was temperamentally conservative, with always a, quote, latent sympathy for the reactionary side, as he once put it. It is remarkable, for example, how steadfastly he held on to opinions that he expressed first as a youthful newspaper editor with the Aurora when he was only 23, and then more amply with the Eagle. His famous doctrine of prudence corresponded to a genuine cautionary strain in his character, which, many years later, he captured amusingly in his advice to his young friend Horace Trobel. Quote, be radical, be radical, be not too damn radical, end quote. Yet Whitman was an emotional radical. The mighty joy of his eagle editorial has a personal ring. The broad accusatory tone, boiling into righteous rage, almost jars Whitman out of journalistic cliché. In his view, it was precisely the violence of American life, its crudeness and rough-hewn exaggerations, that infused it with natural energy, giving rise to a new creation, the, quote, young giant of democracy, whose freaks and excesses express the exuberance of youth as the surface of his body expands to the sun and air. When this truculent giant reappeared as the voice of Whitman's poetry, he would burst apart the good government of orderly speech. Instead of subordinating his poem to an imperious theme, he would give every line a density and mobility that would expand the surface of the poem to the sun and air. These seeds of Whitman's later imagery and tone, scattered in his dutiful prose of the 1840s, offer a clue to the adventure he was about to embark on. It is a typical Whitmanesque movement, from the clichés of American national feeling to the interior vision of his new poetry. These passages also reveal an aspect of his character that becomes less visible as time passes. As a newspaper editor, Whitman was an angry man. He raged at the European past, at Brooklyn's, at Whig conservatism, at the anti-war faction in his own party, at Brooklyn's inadequate water supply. He raged in his personal life, too. Once, an overzealous usher at Grace Episcopal Church removed Whitman's hat for him. Twisting the hat into a rope, Whitman beat the usher over the head with it before sweeping out of the posh church he had never liked much anyway. And in his writing, Whitman's angry rhetoric his contribution to the American turbulence could crackle with immediacy. Before Whitman became a poet, outrage occasionally made him one, as in the article I have quoted, but also in nuggets of wild language scattered throughout his eagle journalism. Repeatedly, America's, quote, uncorrupted core of primer, primal, fresher soul is called upon to overthrow Europe's, quote, moral rottenness, with one unanimous, prompt, shrieking yell of scorn. 
hate and horror, so wild and high that the old fabric of royalty might come tumbling in ruins to the ground. End quote. Whitman would use this tone in 1850 in his first experimental poems, several of which are as much angry editorials as poems. And Zwei goes on to say that eventually Whitman would suppress this note as he, him, as he made himself into a robust democratic father, the, quote, greatest lover of the universe. Yet it is worth noting that poetry for Whitman began in anger. And now we come to a wonderful passage in Zweig where he describes how Whitman came to, to be a lover of opera and how that influenced his poetry. He says, Whitman's conversion to opera seems to have taken place early in 1847. A few months before, he was still comparing the heart music of American family singing groups like the Hutchinsons to the stale, second-hand, foreign method with its trills, the agonized squalls, the lackadaisical drawlings, the sharp, ear-piercing shrieks, the gurgling death rattles, the painful leaps from the fearfulest eminences to a depth so profound that we, that we for a while hardly expect the tongue to scramble up again, end quote. And I should remind listeners here that the dates for Whitman that are most important, especially in reading this book, is that the first edition of Leaves of Grass appears in 1855. And at this point in the book, Zweig is tracing how Whitman got there. He goes on to say, but in early 1847, a new tone crept into Whitman's opera reviews. On 16 January, the tenor in Lucia di Lammermoor reminded him of, quote, an exquisitely played flute, at once dazzling and soothing. A few months later, he exalted over the lead soprano's performance in another opera, saying, quote, her voice is the purest soprano, and of as silvery clearness as ever came from the human throat, rich but not massive, and of such flexibility that one is almost appalled at the way the most difficult passages are not only gone over with ease, but actually dallied with, and their difficulty redoubled. They put one in mind of the gyrations of a bird in the air." End quote. Here, for the first time, is the man who would write, Oh, what is it in me that makes me tremble so at voices? Surely whoever speaks to me now in the right voice, him or her I shall follow, as the water follows the moon silently, with fluid steps anywhere around the globe. And this is the person whose 1850s notebooks would contain the following paragraph, which was later refined into a key passage of Song of Myself. Quote, I want that tenor, large and fresh as the creation, the orbed parting of whose mouth shall lift over my head the sluices of all the delight yet discovered for our race. I want the soprano that lithely overleaps the stars, 
and convulses me like the love grips of her in whose arms I lay last night. I want an infinite chorus and orchestrium. Wide is the orbit of Uranus, true as the hours of the day, and filling my capacities to receive, as thoroughly as the sea feel, fills its scooped-out sands. I want the chanted hymn whose tremendous sentiment shall uncage in my breast a thousand wide-winged strengths and unknown ardors and terrible ecstasies, putting me through the flights of all the passions, dilating me beyond time and air, startling me with the overture of some unnameable horror, calmly sailing me all day on a bright river with lazy, slapping waves, stabbing my heart with myriads of forked distractions more furious than hail or lightning, lulling me drowsily with honeyed morphine, tightening the fakes of death about my throat, and awakening me again to know by that comparison the most positive wonder in the world, and that's what we call life. End quote. Opera, then, was no ordinary theatrical event for Walt Whitman. When the curtain went up, the sarcastic observer was overwhelmed by sensual excitement, moved to ecstasy by bel canto virtuosity. God was a, quote, vast, pure tenor, rising through the universe, end quote. And Whitman later heard him in the person of the great Petini, a, quote, beautiful, large, robust, friendly young man, who in the early 1850s dazzled New Yorkers in Verde's Ernani, among other famous roles. On first hearing Grand Opera, Whitman wrote, quote, A new world, a liquid world, rushes like a torrent through you. If you have the true musical feeling in you, from this night you date a new era in your development. One of his greatest poems, Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, describes a boy listening to the mournful aria of a mockingbird on a Long Island beach. From that moment, a, quote, new era opens in his development. He is so deeply stirred that he, too, becomes a singer, a poet. The operatic form of Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking, which is a sequence of arias and recitatives, is suggestive. Whitman is apparently telling us that he learned to sing at the opera, that his awareness of how language and the inspired voice could overleap the distance between selves and their isolation had come to him as a member of the audience in one of New York's over-decorated opera houses. Whitman's, quote, barbaric yawp was apparently modeled on the, quote, agonized squalls, the sharp, ear-piercing shrieks of the bel canto soloist. The reader, whom Whitman implores, to hug him lovingly, is the audience he felt himself to be when the tide of singing voices washed over him. Just a wonderful passage. And I also actually heard a nice uh, remark the other day watching a documentary about New York City that Whitman's long line and his catalogs of voices also came from the fact that he, he admitted to simply walking the island of Manhattan from end to end 
listening to voices and that you can almost imagine some of his poems, some of his catalogs that end up being nothing more than lists of things that he's seen. You can almost imagine each line or every few lines just being him turning a corner and telling you what he saw. Here is uh, one more passage for tonight, and this, I believe, is on Whitman's relationship to the theater, which had, uh, I guess you would, not surprisingly, a similar uh, effect upon him. He said, uh, here it is, the experience of the stage, in particular the intimate collaboration of actor and audience, was preternaturally intense for the young Whitman. Whitman says, Seems to me I ought to acknowledge my debt to actors, singers, public speakers, conventions, and the stage in New York, and to plays and operas generally. And then Zwei goes on to say on the next page, The relationship between the actor merging himself bodily into a part and the audience, freed from their social and personal differences by a communion of love and admiration, would be a model for the relationship he would eventually seek with his readers. Whitman's great poems, I think in particular of Song of Myself, are best read as performances and dramatic monologues. Whitman himself would always be exquisitely conscious of the impression he made personally on others, he staged himself with a gusto as a rough, as a benign, peace-giving savior, as a brave, garrulous old man, pitching his personal life so that his poems would appear not as artifacts, but as natural extensions of his conversation. The idea is profoundly theatrical, and Whitman knew that. As he, to quote another remark, uh, that Whitman said to Horace Traubel near the end of his life, these actor people always make themselves at home with me. I feel close to them, very close, almost like one of their kind. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us the number one at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie. <laughs>